0: Welcome back to part two of our listener question episode. This is Dr. Shiloh from LA Not So Confidential, and I am back with...
1: Dr. Loudmouth, who won't shut up. That's me, Dr. Scott. People we thought, love it. Well, I, uh, we thought we were going to be able to get all of our listener questions done in 90 minutes. And of course, we didn't. We are still about halfway through. So we'll, we won't make you wait, though. We'll uh, put these out pretty close to each other, which I think will be fun.
0: You know what? I just realized that as we record, it's Emmy night,
1: and Shits Creek just won three Emmys.
0: Oh my goodness! I remember when we did our Emmys episode like two yeah. years ago. <laughs> uh, what? What? Ha- Here's my listener question for you: What have you been watching lately?
1: Well, because of the world falling apart around us, uh, Dan and I are watching. We we watched all of Shits Creek, which. I love the show when it first, I, no, you know what? I did not discover it until season two. And I marathoned all of season one and, and immediately were like, oh my gosh, how did I not know this is going on? Because I was in college when Second City Television was on out of Canada. It was like the Canadian Saturday Night Live. So I'm in love with Matt, um, Catherine O'Hara. I oh, had yeah. stalked her. I used to wait when I was a waiter at California Pizza Kitchen. I waited on her twice. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: that's amazing.
1: But yeah, so we're watching that because it's just so feel good. Yep. And I think actually it's, uh, for one thing, I mean, from an entertainment standpoint, it's an anomaly in a show because usually the first three or four episodes of any new show is really raw. And the people don't really know each other. I'm telling you, all of these actors, from the minute the camera turns on episode one, they know what they're doing. And it just well, half
0: of them are related to each other, and the others have worked together a long time. True, exactly. (laughs) But no, I know what you mean. The feel is just from the beginning. We're
1: right now, we just got back to where David has opened up the apothecary. And realizes that his business partner, he and his business partner realize that they're falling for each other. And it's just the sweetest first kiss. I mean, it's just, I Aww. like put my hand on my heart going, oh, this is so sweet. Ah, that's awesome. I mean, I would say for most people that don't understand, one of the concepts behind the show, which I think is really lovely and, and progressive and incredibly humanistic, is that they knew going in that their show was not going to be about racism or homophobia or sexism. That was not going to be the drive of the conflict. The conflict was going to be individuals who were fish out of water. Mm. And I didn't even realize that until I, you know, watched interviews with them, I think, in season three. So anyway... Enough about Shit's Creek. Congratulations <laughs> to the Levies and Catherine O'Hara and yeah. everybody associated with the show. And
0: I finally uh, got HBO Max. I haven't had HBO in forever. And so, like, I've been watching The Vow about Nexium, which I wasn't really, you know, I'm not really into cults like you're into cults <laughs> so much, but this one is so fascinating to me to finally sit down and watch it. And it's done so well.
1: Actually, it's it gross. Like, it's interesting how grossed out I am by the story. Like, I don't... Yeah. Because, you know, I for those of you who've listened, listened to our show, I talk about my experience with being approached by a a, a, re, a, a guru, quote unquote, mm-hmm. for a cult years ago. And he was a completely creepy guy. But this Keith Rainier, I look at him and I go, how did anybody fall for that? I He's know. Just gross from day one.
0: Well, that, that's what I was, I was having this conversation with Rebecca Sebastian and I'm like, when I hear it through the television, it's just like goo like he's saying nothing, and, but I'm like, is it different if you're sitting in the room with him and you're in that place, you know, like we talk about like the place you have to be in to be susceptible to this. And because I'm just like, it, I tune it out. Like I don't even, I can't even comprehend what he's saying because I'm so uninterested in what he's, what's coming out of his mouth. But anyway cults it was like our episode number 7 a gazillion years ago. Yeah. Um and Scott tells a story about being approached by the guy from Holy Hell. So Yeah. Go listen to it. Crazy. Um but yeah, uh, have you watched Coastal Elites on no, HBO? No. No,
1: we have you know we'll probably watch that tonight. That's supposed to be great.
0: I watched it. It was really great. It it makes me really miss theater because it's just it's five monologues. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> I miss going to
1: the theater. But do, do you know about the play? I mean, I mean, here we are. It's now September, the end of September. We've all been doing our best to adjust to COVID. It's a it's a different world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and it's been going on for a time. It's it's kind of warped our sense of time. You know, we are constantly adjusting to new normals, and I think the new normal is not knowing where we're going to be even in eight months. I mean, that's just a reality. There's a lot of big things coming up. So I remember about four months ago when there was a big movement in New York to take these small plays and let the original actors do them in their homes on Zoom. And it's really great. I mean, we have a subscription, of course, to the, the Broadway channel. Right. But there is a one-man play, by, by the actor who was in Ugly Betty.
0: I can't think of that is. his name.
1: But anyway, it's a play called Buyer Seller, and it's a what if. So, for most people, if you don't know, Barbara Streisand several years ago did a lifestyle book where she was sharing what her home in Malibu looks like on the inside, and she has all of these crazy ass collections of things that she's bought over the year. That would totally
0: be me if I was rich.
1: Right. So she turned the cellar of her home, the basement of her home, into a fake mall. What the hell? Right. So that there's, she has dolls and she has antique clothing and she has antique this and antique that. And she has like little storefronts, kiosks set up. So this playwright wrote this play, What If They Needed to Hire Somebody to Run It? But run it in character.
0: Stop it. So this that guy is so weird and has this,
1: It's it sounds creepy. It's one of the I most bet it's amazing hilarious. plays. I'm gonna post a link to it and see if people can watch Please. it. I mean it's the, the young actor is so charming and he plays himself and Barbara Streisand talking <laughs> to each other. It's really funny. What? Could you get any more gay on this episode? I I've already talked don't about Barbara Streisand and the Emmys.
0: Jesus in the Right? I love it. I love it. Okay. Should we jump into the questions? We should jump in. Okay, so these are both submitted by Adrian, who's a patron and is just a doll. So he says, where do you see yourselves in five years in your professional careers? Which thank you for asking this because I think this is a good moment to like think about this every once in a while. Um, so I I thought my day job probably won't be that different. Um, But I feel like I am transitioning a little bit, you know, psychologists, we always have a gazillion hustles on the side. Um, But I feel like it's a time to transition out of my private practice. And I think it's, it's having a lot of things on my plate, um, but also timing. And so I think by next year, I'll probably transition out of private practice. I would like to channel that energy and that time into more consultation, whether it be sort of in the criminal justice world. Uh, I do have a a private security and investigation firm that my husband and I own that I do these sort of one-off sort of random weird consultations every once in a while that are so much fun. And I would like to do more of that, but I'd also like to do More media consultation too, totally behind the scenes. You know, I that that's something that I kind of want to put out there that I think would be fun and interesting and um, take less of my bandwidth than being in the clinical room does. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But um, so I don't know. I, I guess something some conglomerate of that in five years. Um, But I feel like this is sort of a transition period for me where I'm like, "Eh, what what am I doing? What do I want? There's not a lot of room for uh, promotion in the unit that I work in, which is fine. I'm I'm totally, you know, I love what I do. So um, I'll have to do that in other ways, professional development elsewhere. So what about you? Do you think you'll do clinical services forever?
1: Uh well, first before I answer, I was gonna say I I really appreciate this question. I Me really, too. really appreciate the question. And I wanna reflect back to anybody who's listening that having just allowing yourself the room to think about where you wanna be in a year, in three years, in five years, in ten years is a really great exercise. And it's a great exercise, especially for anxious people, because it sounds counterintuitive. Because you think, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, I'm anxious. I, I worry about stuff all the time. Uh, the reason I say that is because I think I, I always tell people, uh, clients, that it's real. it's as old of a trope as this is, it really is about the journey and have a goal and always be willing. And open enough to let the goal become something else because a lot of people will get very concrete about what they want their lives to look like and they really lose sight of what they want their lives to feel like. Yes. So I really would encourage people to think about like how do you want to feel in one year, in three years, in five years? Do you want to feel fulfilled? Do you want to feel challenged? Do you want to feel blank, 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 blank? Yeah, Any of what those are you things?
0: feeling right now that you don't want to feel? Exactly.
1: Exactly. I mean, you can look, we live in a highly industrialized first world country where given circumstances and opportunities, you do have a lot of chances to manifest amazing things. I mean, it it is a possibility for many people, even some people that are in marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. However, you know, just be careful because you might be really concrete on something that in the long run is not going to make you feel the way you want to feel. Sure. So, you know, I'm I'm inviting people to come into the emotional realm and think about that. Now had that being said with me, (laughs) I, I, uh, in five years, I Mm -hmm. don't necessarily see myself doing a lot. I struggle with whether or not I use my day job and move up On one hand, if I moved up through the organization and I wanted to work towards making more macro change and administrative policy, while I really admire that and I'm drawn to it, I don't think I'm the person to do that. I'm very hot-headed, as a lot of people who know me. I I stick my foot in my mouth all the time. I'm very passionate. There's a
0: lot of editing that happens on this podcast.
1: There's a lot of editing. I'm just kidding. Stop it. But when you work in in huge organizations, it's that, you know, those organizations are huge and they move very slowly. And that takes a a certain level of slow and steady. And that is Mm -hmm. not necessarily what stimulates me in order for me to be creative and happy as I, you know, I need a lot more stimulation. So, and I love doing the clinical work, but I also do clinical work in my day job as well as my private practice. And I like the private practice. It's a good balance, but, you know, I have had to come to a place where I have to really look at Western culture and its misplaced emphasis on what we used to call Protestant work ethic, that your sense of identity and self-worth is based on how hard you work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that if you don't have quality relationships or you don't have this or you don't have that, it doesn't matter because you're a good person because you work hard. And that's something that really emotionally I had to deconstruct in my own therapy work. So I see myself like really trying reconfiguring and and moving the chess pieces around on the board for myself. I'm going to keep the private practice for a few more years, but it's going to be much smaller. Good. And I want to write more. You know, there I've you always go. wanted to write. I just need to.
0: What kind of writing?
1: In our field, I want to write. I want to do more research. I mean, you and I are working yeah. on an article together. Right. I'm hoping that that will um, that will turn into something. I would love. We have been encouraged. We've been encouraged by a publisher acquaintance of mine to turn all of our episodes into chapters of a book. Yeah. Uh, and Shiloh and I like that would be we could, so much fun. It would be a, a great fun if we could fit it into our schedule. If we could, I do know. That. And then we also both, I mean, LA Not So Confidential has opened up some opportunities for us that, you know, we'll be coy about because we can't really talk about, but they're really great ideas. We are holding mm-hmm. them lightly. Mm-hmm. We'll for see sure. what the universe provides and it's yes. fun. So who knows where we'll be? I, I, I know I'll still be in this field. I mean, I just, I, I can't even believe that I found something that I could be so happy and passionate about, like after being in a completely different career pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I I it surprises me how much I love collaborating with others on projects and research and and obviously like it's manifesting in this way. But I've always been like so independent, I'm going to get it done myself. The amount of work I put in is directly related to you know, the output that I get, but the collaboration pieces, I really feed off of that and it's so fun to meet people with different experiences and expertise and disciplines and or something similar but a different perspective and and collaborate on a project together.
1: Yeah. Well, I feel I feel like I'm more productive in that environment and in that scenario because there's something about having the containment plus the accountability of working on a project with someone else. I just feel yeah. like it's it's for me that's the perfect crucible and I know that there are other people that like I don't want to collaborate. Let me just tell me what to do and I'll go off and do it on right, my own.
0: Right, and, right. You know,
1: but I also, like, like you were saying, I want to collaborate with people that are going to feed my process as well. Mm-hmm. And, and vice versa, I want to be able to be supportive and, and um, adjunctive to other people's processes as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. So Adrian also asks us, have either of you taken a client that had to be assigned to a different clinician? I'll let you go first.
1: So I've been on both sides of it. Mm. Um, the the one that was very interesting was I was working with a family um, at an agency having to do with forensics. And I thought going in it was going to be run-of-the-mill family work. And I very quickly realized that... On the outside, while while it it looked like a quote unquote traditional family patriarchal structure, that there was a dynamic going on where uh, mom was incredibly unhealthy, Mm -hmm. and I went to my supervisor and I said, "I I here's and I I mean it's interesting because my supervisor was a psychologist, so she wasn't really well versed in family systems, so I kind of had to draw a diagram." And explain it to her like, look, this is this is what's going on here. And we don't really do that kind of work here. I can do it for you. But here's what I will do. I will poke at the foundation here and here and here to see what kind of reaction I get. So we agreed that that was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And the minute I poked, they never came back again.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And And I mean, this was a gentle poke. This yeah, was oh, like sure. a gentle, gentle poke. And uh, there was a huge, she tried to make a complaint. This, this the, the mom in the dynamic tried to make a complaint that I had been insulting to her. And of course, like the supervisor checked out with the other family members and they were like, no, that's not what happened at right. all. So right. then she changed her story and she demanded to, to see another clinician. So, mm. which is fine, you know. Everybody has their their stuff, and yeah, you know, definitely. It's the, the maintaining the therapeutic relationship can be very difficult at times because you know it can it can fall apart when you when you challenge people's predisposition and 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 you know sure. their foundations. Sure. So I've, on the other side, when you say reassigned, I'll tell you this: one of the things that has happened, and this is something that we don't really talk about a lot in our colleagues. Like I'll talk about like I had two colleagues. Steve Lappa and Angela Wallace, who are NFTs here in Los Angeles, that are just—they're such amazing clinicians, and they're such amazing people. And you know, we went to grad school together. I'm just so in awe of the work that they do, and they're—and we, we're all very different. All three of us work uh-huh. very differently. We have different modalities, but you know, we have—we had a, a, our Shrink's Who Drink Night. Um, <laughs> We have it pretty regularly and we haven't so much through COVID, but I remember a couple of years ago, we were having a Friday night cocktail session and we were talking about how, you know, inheriting clients from other clinicians in the private practice world that are known to be problematic. Yeah. And so it's not so much about, I'm not revealing anything about the clients that came to us, but there are some, you know... There's some people out there doing this work that you know. I just encourage people be really careful about who you go to as a therapist. It's got to be if anything feels off about that person, that is your instinct telling you that something is off. And um, you know, I've gotten, you know, I have had someone that it was interestingly enough, I had a long-term client that I worked with, and he came to me because. His clinician was, had relapsed, not knowing, you know, he didn't know. All he knew was that suddenly he showed up to the office and the clinician wasn't there for two weeks with no phone call, no nothing. Oh my God. And then gave a phone call of like, oh, I had the flu. Well, no, that doesn't happen. That's also wow. not an authentic, as a clinician, that's also not an authentic response. No. You know, and, and. Unfortunately for the client, what we had to do for quite a while was unpack the feeling of betrayal. Of course, this individual felt after having been with them for several years.
0: Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could not think of an instance where this has happened. And I was kind of reflecting on that because I'm like, come on, like in all this time it's had to have happened. And um, I just really can't think of anything like a, a specific situation where something was to that point where I have had to reassign a client. And and that could happen for a number of reasons. You know, I think just for our audience, you could have some sort of counter-transference towards a client where you're realizing that that person or their situation is really triggering something in you where you're not going to be a good therapist for them. Right. Um, or like you've already talked about already, like that the, something comes up where you don't have the training or the expertise and where you would have to refer out to somebody else. And I really couldn't think of anything. I, I know I was close once, and I think this is a sort of a, a product of working in a clinic setting where you don't have unlimited resources and maybe... Some of us stuck with clients longer than we would have had we had the luxury to pass them on to someone else that maybe would have been more tolerant of them. But sometimes you just don't have those resources. Um, and, And never was it in a situation where it was unethical, where I was hanging on to someone that I shouldn't have. But I know that there was one particular client that was when I worked in sex offender treatment who was also a former law enforcement officer. And that was triggering in and of itself. Yeah. Um, But this particular individual's presentation and deep amount of denial and smugness drove me insane. And there were times where I had to have talks with myself of, this person is still deserving of treatment. You still need to try. Because I wanted to be like, okay, you're not willing to go there. Cool. We'll just sit here and stare at each other, you know, because I was, I had such a disdain for the fact that he was a police officer who was held in such high regard, which high responsibility and still engaged in these particular acts.
1: That's so to me, real, it was, that's a real difficult position to be. In. It
0: was very difficult, very difficult. So, um, so you know, it, it was something that I did talk about. I wasn't a student at the time, but I still would have conversations and consultation with colleagues about it and would continually check in with myself of like, okay, you know, this feeling is going to come up in a session when we would do individual um, or or group. And, you know, sometimes there were times that I just sort of didn't involve him in the group discussion or... You know, I really said, you need to go, you need to push past this and try and see, you know, what, how you can fold him in, even if he doesn't want to. And if he's going to say, eh, I'm not participating in this. So, so yeah, I I think in a perfect world, if I was able to say like, hey, can someone else do this group? Maybe, but um, it just, it, it wasn't feasible, I guess is a way to say.
1: Yeah, I think. You're certainly bringing up something that is, I mean, I, I guess the general public doesn't necessarily know that, you know, we have guidelines that are sometimes rules, that are sometimes ethical considerations, that are sometimes legal considerations mm-hmm. about who we can provide services to if you're in private practice. Um, you know, if it was, you know, I remember as a trainee. I at the a, a training as an MFT, I got a new client and I thought god this guy seems really familiar and in the middle of the intake I realized we had gone out like oh, wow. 10 yeah. years before.
0: Oh my goodness. Like yeah. and it was
1: a it was a terrible date. <laughs> and um and I had to say like hey, I don't know if you remember me, but blah blah blah. I I I can't see you like right. this is this is some, this is just not allowed and he was like I have to say he was like actually really great um and we were able to transfer him over some to somebody but like say you live in a rural area and you're the only clinician around then there's more leeway but then that has its own problems because you know mm-hmm in a rural area like where do you socialize are you going to run into your people like how are you going to manage that
0: we have the, telehealth nowadays
1: I know I think <laughs> Find i actually, a different therapist I think that telehealth is going to change you know I mean certainly you know yeah. if I was a if I was nothing but private practice man I'd be buying a cabin up in Idlewild with a t3 connection there you go and you know just yep pay me over Venmo and i like, live my life. while
0: I stare at the squirrels.
1: <laughs> I know I'd be like throwing, you know, I'd be like throwing peanuts over my, my shoulder. Uh, back, yeah. But uh, yeah, there are considerations about getting triggered and you can't move away. I mean, I, I was in that with an officer one time who um, refused to take any responsibility for his DUI. And then I was like, I had to have this conversation of like, look, dude, in order for you to go back, with a clean yeah. bill of health, we need to have a frank conversation about the decisions you made. And you know, I mean, it. I, I felt like I mean that was a very frustrating twelve weeks. I'll tell you that was a very oh
0: frustrating wow. 12 weeks. Yeah, I bet. My goodness, yeah. It, it clients can be reassigned for all sorts of issues um, and reasons, and that's a really good question. Um, I was act- I was really surprised to kind of think back on it and realized it hadn't happened more than I thought. It yeah, probably these probably would have. Yeah. These and maybe are great it has, questions. But maybe just not so, you know, significant or uh, for an important issue that I remember. So, All right. So we're going to move into a couple of questions on criminal behavior. Uh, so we have a question that says, my friend claims that the reason why there were so many violent crimes in the 80s was due to the high levels of toxic lead used to build apartments and homes. Is this crazy talk? I thought there was not an increase, rather the criminals were simply caught.
1: Okay, th- this is great on so many levels because for one it's I had never even heard of this concept. Really? At all. I had not, had you heard of that?
0: Well, it's so funny. I aside from this question, we had I'm going to look for it right now. We had an Instagram message from someone bringing up the same thing and gave me a little bit more information, which I probably should have looked at before right now. But I do kind of remember this theory being one of several of of criminology, criminal behavior. Um, But what what did you look into?
1: Well, there's a think tank that does research called the Brookings Institute. I will be very transparent with the, if you look on sort of Politico's graph of leanings of where this particular organization leans. they are more center left. Mm-hmm. they're known as a liberal think tank okay, so
0: that's good that, to know. If
1: that puts anybody off. you know I did fair warning, just wanted to let you know. There was an article by the Brookings Institute that basically looked at a bunch of stats, and yeah, it's been supported in three different studies that uh, inner city crime, you know, there was a correlation between the amount of exposure to lead in in young adults. That's
0: really interesting. You know, it reminds me of, um, I hope I get this right, just off the top of my head, um, of, do you remember when the Freakonomics book came out
1: I don't know. I hate I hate stuff. those guys.
0: <laughs> so like ten years ago or something like oh, that. Oh, it's
1: longer than that. Longer but I, than I, that. I will say that they some some of the stuff they talk about is absolutely genius, and some of it I think is absolute BS. But
0: okay, good caveat. Yeah. Um. So they were talking about the drop in violent crime in the last what two two and a half decades now, and they were linking it through all of the information that they give, which I don't have off the top of my head right now, um, with when abortion was legalized and that if you take the time that that law passed and now fast forward 20, 25, 30 years to where those unwanted children would have been alive and in their prime to commit crime, that violent crime went down because those children weren't born which I think is super interesting when we're talking about correlation, not causations here, right? Well,
1: It is, but you, but the, the problem with that argument is it was really verging on, on racist because they were specifically looking at quote unquote urban and trying to make the correlation correlation that it was, you know, black men. And, Oh, I I did not know that. And that didn't bear out. That did not bear out. Now, what, they, that particular study talks about is that the, somebody that refuted it was talking about how unplanned and unwanted births in lower socioeconomic families mm-hmm. leads to more of a cycle of poverty. Sure. Poverty is there and is very directly co- correlated to a higher incident of, incidence of incidents of crime. Sure. You no, know, especially sure. I mean for so many different levels. So that's that's right. one of the reasons that like the, the freakonomics guys piss me off. Like sometimes. I mean they they had a they wanted to approach global warming by putting nuclear powered ships in the ocean that would just generate clouds. Oh, can we just like, do
0: that?
1: I, I don't know. <laughs> but there were a couple of things. I probably need to go back and read the book. Some of the things at the beginning I thought were very interesting, but like uh
0: yeah, so maybe it's more of like a um three or four pronged process rather than just from A to Z.
1: Right. And that's one of the, and that even though this article by Jennifer Doliak to 2017 at the Brookings Institute, uh brookings.edu um was looking at and one of the reasons this came up was because of all the lead poisoning in the waters of Flint, Michigan. You know, so this sent some more yeah. a- more attention back to this particular issue because there was a lead a lead crime hypothesis that, number one, lead exposure at young ages leaves children with problems like learning disabilities, ADHD, impulse control problems, Mm -hmm. and that these, supposedly these caused them to commit crimes as adults, particularly violent crime. And uh, so there was a lot of argument back and forth about whether or not this was true And then there are three recent papers that consider the effects of lead poisoning on juvenile delinquency and crime rates, um, although they use very different empirical approaches. So, yeah, there's there's some correlation. What I really love about what she's done in this article is she's saying that there are three recent papers and they are using three very different empirical approaches and social context, which is the way. All sorts of, uh, that's the way all research should be done.
0: Yeah. You know, if yeah. possible,
1: research should look at the big picture and then drill down and see the similarities.
0: Right. Who, the, the listener who would contact me over social media about this said that the last podcast on the left did an episode on this. Um, and I know they have a gazillion episodes, so I can't even tell you which one it is. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but there might be some
1: more information there. Yeah, but interesting stuff. That yeah. was very interesting. Uh, what's next?
0: Um, okay, so the next question is, is someone who views and collects child sexual abuse images always a pedophile? Number one, thank you for using the term child sexual abuse images. Yeah. We love our audience. Thank you for listening. No, so this is, this is kind of clean cut. And, and um, well, it's, it's not clean cut, but I can give you a good stat for this. So when we look at individuals specifically just with charges of possession of child sexual abuse images, so this is sort of ruling out all the other types of internet offenses. We're just really drilling down on this one. The community has done a lot of research in this area. Who meets the criteria for pedophilia? And the reason we ask this question, even to begin with, is because the fear and the the constant question and hypothesis out there is will an individual looking at this material then want to go out and harm children and or the converse of that is this sort of keeping that behavior from happening because they're just looking at the images online so we'll
1: move to a contact defense
0: right so this is sort of this this million-dollar question in the research and in looking at tr- how to best treat these types of offenders. But the breakdown for people who have possession, now I'm, I'm going to get back to your, your term that you use, which is collect, but when we look at individuals who've been convicted of possession charges, about 50% of them meet the criteria for pedophilic disorder. So half yes, Half no, and in our all illegal, <laughs> all illegal, right? One thousand yes, percent have no
1: all illegal. So,
0: um, so in our series on internet facilitated sex crimes, we break down all those stats uh, and talk about you know the the intricacies of what makes up somebody who is looking at this stuff. But I find it's really interesting that she says someone who views and collects, because to me. When I am going through and have the file of someone in front of me that I'm trying to assess that I might be looking at a pedophilia diagnosis, I want to look at what their actual behavior was like, not just a charge of possession. So if a cup, you know, if a zip drive of pornography labeled Something as benign as porn is downloaded onto their computer, and there happens to be out of a 100 images, 10 are of people under the age of 18. That's much different than offenders that Scott and I have seen, where they are actively searching, collecting sometimes a series Thousands. of a particular <laughs> victim, right. like baseball cards trying to get the whole collection and then collecting them, downloading them, sometimes to the point where they are printing them out on high gloss color paper. We all know how much that costs Um, and cataloging them and putting them in binders. That is much different. And I'm going to take that information to say, okay, what is this person's true sexual interest? and or what was the pathway that they got to this material. Um, So I would say when someone is to the level of collecting, quote-unquote, that that's really pretty strong evidence of a pervasive deviant sexual disorder. Um, And I'm going to probably start leaning more towards some sort of paraphilia going on there. Um, It would lend to my argument, if you will, for a pedophilic disorder as well as any information that I obtain from the person themselves, as well as other history of behavior. But great question. You know, yeah, I'm always really. willing to be chatty about that.
1: Yeah, great question. So the next one is what is the favorite part of your job?
0: Ooh like we talked about so many good things already. <laughs> I, I feel like I have to add on to this, the um, the collaboration piece, but I won't talk about that again. I I like the being able to s- sit in a room and make that connection with another human being on a level that might only be impactful to them for that 50 minutes and hopefully beyond. But just getting to share those those really human moments with someone is really special that someone that isn't, you know, your family or your friends and you know that it's a safe space for them to be able to to have that as well for whatever they're dealing with i mean that's pretty unbeatable i th- i feel like i also got that fulfillment when i was a police officer too when you're going to someone's home and they're having a really awful, sometimes horrific day, or, you know, it can be something simple and you're just helping them. You're making the smallest difference in their day to be able to help them out. I guess there's a lot of careers where you can feel that way. Um I don't know if you're like a IT person on the other end, maybe you're helping someone out with it when their internet's out, like it was for me on day one of my daughter's distance learning. (laughs) I think that woman and I connected and she was like, I will put this in as an emergency. And I'm just like, so grateful. But, you know, I, I think that is, um, it's just a really special part when you know that someone's opening up and being vulnerable with you, like maybe they aren't with anyone else in their life because they're not ready to, but also knowing that the other parts of my work is having a bigger, larger impact on the the field that I'm specifically in. So like right now, I'm actually, I have stepped away from my regular job at the agency I work with as a police psychologist to kind of learn a different area of my department, which is training. So it's, it's police sciences, it's education, it's training, and it's a lot of research. It's looking at what models are being done in other parts of the country. It's how can we best have the top notch police training in all sorts of areas, which we know is like to me is hugely important right now. And I feel so absolutely, absolutely grateful to be a part of it right now because I feel like, okay, this isn't like that one on one impact, but this could be really big. And this could be in this moment in time something that is changing the future of police training forever. So I, I think having both of those, and it doesn't have to be the position I'm in right now, it could be me teaching a course. Like that to me is not that one-on-one, but I feel like it has a big sustaining impact on how an officer, a jailer, a dispatcher is going to go about their job in the future. Um, If it's like how to deal with somebody with mental illness or being aware of what suicidal behavior might look like, that's going to be important one day that they have that information in their back pocket. So it's that duality, that one-on-one yeah. and then sort of the larger picture. What about you?
1: Well, I thought I had a, a really direct answer. And then as you were talking, it made, <laughs> me, it made me think of something else that, that we have said before. I, my, I, but this is really overarching. And then I'll add another uh, point. I love my job. Like yes, I feel like I'm, <laughs> I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world because I love my job, and you know that that's not necessarily it's not fair to people to say, "Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life uh-huh. because that's just not a reality for the vast majority of the world, you know, certainly always trying to have a quality of life, no matter what you you do. Uh, the example I think of is that when I was in entertainment. And I had moved out of performing into casting. I had my first boss was somebody that I learned so much from, and she was just amazing. Her name's Allison Jones. She's hilarious. She casts Judd Apatow movies. She's like this unbelievable uh, talent finder. And then I worked with uh, Robin Lippin, who was another amazing boss. (laughs) And my third boss was a nightmare. (laughs) Not so
0: much amazing.
1: Yeah. And so the juxtaposition that I'm trying to illustrate is that it was on a network prime TV show that was, you know, for working in casting was pretty prestigious. And I thought, like, this is really cool. My name is in the end credits of this television show. How cool. And I was miserable going to work for a year. This person was, you know... Has their own challenges. You know, that's what I'm going to say is like, you know, <laughs> you're
0: so nice. In, bless in, their in, heart.
1: In, intrinsically, yeah, it is. It's a southern thing of bless, bless her heart. Um, you know, not an intrinsically bad person, but really made bad decisions, was a bad manager. And it's that thing of like, you, you know, you got to find that happy medium where this, this thing was so bad that it affected the rest of my life. And sure. to the point where I was able to finally just go, enough, I'm out of here. And then I went to another boss who was fantastic. She was really great. But to get back to this, I love my job. I love that I may be in some way positively impacting somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And I say that I, I do not take credit. I mean, regardless of whether I'm doing forensic work, like I, I tell people, like I've got a bunch of letters after my name and I've got a bunch of trainings because I love going to trainings. But you, for the most part, for the vast majority of this experience of us together, you are the expert in your life. And I'm on the road with you. So I'm, my job as I see it is to point out some of the geography on this journey that you may not be noticing and telling you, let's like, let me, let me redirect, let me be the neck in this relationship so that I can direct your perspective a little bit. And, you know, you know, do I take, I, I, I don't take responsibility for the successes because I think that those are client-based. I take absolutely. I take pride and um, great solace in being a part of it, and I do. But I do take responsibility. I mean, unfortunately, I probably shouldn't. You know, I I probably take more responsibility I should for. I don't want to say failures, but for the challenges that are, you know, we're not able to overcome.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's like we're a tool that they have to use us. They have to be participatory in their own transition and change. And yeah, it's so neat to be a part of that.
1: I also, I mean, I like as weird as it sounds, I like myself better as a person after having done this job for a long time.
0: That's a really cool thing to say.
1: I feel like I walk through doing the best job I can and I challenge myself and I don't beat myself up for what I can't do anymore. Now, Interesting. I'm going to give you a little process moment now that I'm saying that maybe when I was working for that terrible boss, maybe I wasn't great, a great employee for her. That's an absolute possibility. Totally. I, I didn't have that experience with the other employers. The other employers were like, you're the best associate I've ever had.
0: Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. I, I think a lot can come with, you know, whatever we're going through in our own lives at that time. I, I think, you know, could you have been doing something else and still feel like, hey, I really like myself at this moment. And does that just come with? Maturity and right the point that you're at, possibly. So,
1: so yeah. I mean, I just love. I mean, it's also I love going to my job. I love the work. I love maybe making an impact, but also like the stuff that. On one hand, my routine at my day job is the same. It's like here's another case for you, or here's another three cases, and maybe fifty percent of them will be like sort of the same thing we always deal with, and then something else will be like what? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then you have to dig in. It's like, get your pick and shovel. We got to pull this thing apart and figure out what's going on. I love
0: that. It's just
1: fascinating.
0: And I love that you said how you love to go to training. We said this in our very first episode that we are self-proclaimed training whores because nothing just makes me more motivated than going to training and having all of these ideas and going either I'm going to work this into my practice or, Oh, I want to write about this. or I want to know more about that. And I feel like that's the energy that we get from so many of our listeners to like going back to what you were saying in the first part of this of just people love to really, I hate the term deep dive because it's so overused, but really get in it and research the heck out of it.
1: I think part of that also is that it's, it's humbling. I love it. I love going, I had no idea about Reed Malloy. Like every time I go, I just... I look at Reed Malloy like a fanboy because that guy is so smart. And every time I go to one of his trainings, and he may have done the same training for, you know, five or six times, and I'll go, oh, man, I had no idea. He always Mm -hmm. finds something that's like the next level of interest and the most current research. And by the same token, the absolute opposite is I remember several years ago being in a huge room full of nothing but psychologists. We're talking like 250 psychologists. And the person got up to give a long, long training, and it was absolute bullshit. Ugh. The person did not know what they were talking about, had not done the research. They were just spouting gobbledygook. And the fact that pe- we all had to sit there for the entire day and all make really uncomfortable eye contact with each other right? of what is happening.
0: What is happening. Yeah. Yeah, Thank no. gosh.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful. That's only been a very rare occurrence. You know, usually the trainings are really great. Good. All
0: right. What's our next question?
1: The next question is...
0: We're getting into like pop culture. And ooh, yeah,
1: this stuff. is a good one. How do movie tropes compare to real life and how have they evolved over time? Example is Manic Pixie Girl and the guy who invented it regrets it now. that, you know
0: that story about that guy that invented it?
1: I I remember. Yeah, I had read it. I think there was an article in The Atlantic about it that's really great. And, you know, their Manic Pixie Girl is a trope of sort of this free spirited, like, so if it's there's a, a, a sort of a lost and emotionally lonely and disenfranchised or disenchanted young man, and he meets this age appropriate woman who is the manic pixie. And she just has this effervescent and magical view on life. And she's a free spirit. And she's going to
0: open to his eyes. She's going to open his eyes to
1: life. And like Kirsten Dunst in, gosh, what was that movie? I just hated the movie. It was with Orlando Bloom. And she's playing a flight attendant that's a manic.
0: Oh.
1: And she's such a good actress. But it was just sort of like, it's so tropey. I always Um, think of
0: 50 Days of Summer. Yes. Zoe Deschanel. Yeah. Um, But I mean, but this has happened forever. I mean, Audrey Hepburn type films, right? Yeah,
1: really. But kind of Breakfast at Tiffany's is sort of, mm -hmm. I mean, not so much the movie, but the book is really kind of about that. But at least Truman Capote gets into sort of underneath it what the real sadness and that she was actually sort of creating an alternate identity sure. versus what she grew up with. And I think either the Appalachians or the Ozarks, you know, she had reinvented herself. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about like one, and this is the movie, like I love the movie garden state with Zach Brath and Natalie Portman, but that's another example of yeah. sort of this one dimensional character. And the problem with these kind of tropes is that they reduce individuals down to these one dimensional characters that, unless you're willing to look at it with a critical eye, you don't realize how demeaning it is. Right. So, I mean, there's a great article, I'll put a link up that I thought was really fantastic that goes through a lot of the tropes. Um, Mm -hmm. Give us some other examples. I will, but I want to like give a couple of quotes that are really great. Hugo Schweizer uh, in 2013 wrote this and he goes, the manic pixie dream girl is a well-known pop uh, cliche. It was uh, Elizabeth Town was the movie with Kirsten Dunst. And then, um, let's see. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries. And uh, then a new statement New Statement uh, magazine, Laurie Penny, argued that the ubiquity of this stock character in mainstream movies has real world implications. Men grow up expecting to be the hero of their own story. Women grow up expecting to be the supporting actress in somebody else's. So once, so, again, so on ahead. the surface, they think it's going to be empowering to women right. to take on this magical sort of uh, persona when basically it's no, it's the side character.
0: To the guy's it's, story.
1: Right. So another, oh, you wanted to say something. I was going to.
0: Oh, I just, I. So is the hypothesis that this stems, particularly in filmmaking and TV, that the writers' room was majority men.
1: Exactly. What percentage for yes. a lot of these? Yes, exactly. So, uh, off the top of your head, the number of female writers in film and television in Hollywood right now. What percentage is it?
0: Um. Right now, I would say 20%.
1: Well, let's take it back. Let's take it back to two years.
0: Okay. I'll I'll still say 20%. 11. Oh, dear God. Yeah,
1: it's pretty low. Because what it means is that that we're, you know, we're one perspective on female sexuality. I mean, like a whole series. I could not even watch this. I hated this show so much was Ally McBeal. Like Ally McBeal loathed that show. Um, and that was Callista Flockhart. Was that, I mean, you know, I hear she's a nice tropes. person. Yeah. But that's exactly uh, what that character is. And I just thought I found it
0: completely Well, but exhausting. you also have the exotic Asian woman in there. Right.
1: Yes. We have a list of them. I mean, the other one that comes up that is particularly needs to be challenged is the magical Negro. Ooh.
0: You know, which yes. is like
1: Will Smith in that golf movie or... You know, any, it's always like it it reduces people of color down to this secondary character that is there to then enhance or magically change the perspective on life of this primary, usually white character, usually white Mm -hmm. male. Mm -hmm. And that's just, again, it's just a trope. And that needs to die. It needs to stay. Because
0: that's been around for a very long time.
1: Right. Right. Even going back to, you know. I mean, horrible uh, movie that ho- needs to never be seen again is uh, Song of the South.
0: Yeah, that's um, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Of. Um, so
1: hold on. I wanted, there's yeah. a whole list of them that I got that was so well done. Ten, the, the list of it's called 10 Media Tropes That Just Need to Die Already, yep. which I think is great. These are great. So this one's pretty clear The Damsel in Distress. I'm a helpless woman in need of rescue. Uh, clearly, and and uh-huh. thankfully, we see a lot less of that. Which yes. is great, right? And the big yes. joke, the the big send up of that would be on in. I think it was Shrek two, when mm-hmm. they're in the castle and the castle's being attacked, and uh, Fiona's trying to get all the princesses to fight, and they're right. like, "Okay, let's do what we always do," and then they all just kind of lay down. <laughs> well, they faint, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, this one, uh, the, number two on this list, I am so glad that this is listed because Me too. I had not been educated on this until I read a whole article. And it was all written by a dad. He's uh, saying, stop, stop complimenting me on being a dad. Yeah. Because so it's the
0: bumbling dad,
1: the bumbling dad trope, which as much as I love the show, modern family, I love all the actors on it. They're all talented. It's, you know, had a 10-year run. It, you know, laugh out loud, funny. Sure. But Phil Dunphy is that guy. He's the bumbling dad. I'm lovable and hopelessly incompetent. Everything, everyone around me expects so little of me, so I get a pass. Now, right. they, they don't completely buy into that, but there's a lot that's done. And it's also not respecting the guys that are out there in this modern world that are being great, competent dads.
0: Well, and I see this. So much in television commercials for products, like, oh, you don't know how to clean this, or you don't know how to cook this. You know, it's just like the dad, the husband is a complete idiot and has no idea what to do around the house which it can go towards tropes in both ways like that the woman only knows how to do it exactly. and exactly um but it's it is really like the the piece of this i'm lovable and hopelessly incompetent like that incompetence comes through in television commercials so much
1: right it's well they, they're they mining it for comedy without really seeing it's sort of always it's also there's this isn't even listed on here but it's one that being, you know, coming from a family of educators, is the trope of you know the the mean and awful teacher, angry middle aged woman mm-hmm. who is burned out and doesn't care anymore, and she's not as smart as her spunky little students. That's really freaking yeah, annoying. Always- I hate that. And that wasn't even on our list. The next one on this one, which is a, a really a very important one is the sassy black woman i'm the embodiment of a sexist racist stereotype i'm curvy bold and audacious and i exist audacious and i exist to make you laugh uh-huh. and that's incredibly it's just it need that needs to never appear again <laughs> it
0: needs to die already <laughs>
1: right well it's just not it's not respectful to women of color especially and one of the things especially in in taking an anti-racist stance on a number of levels and doing clinical work in the room. And this is something that reading an article about this written by a Black woman, how frustrating it was for her to sit with a therapist who, when she shared, you know, all the struggles that she was having as Mm -hmm. that's what therapy is for, the response back from her white female therapist was like, but you're a strong Black woman. Right. You know, sort of.
0: Playing into a trope
1: playing into a trope and as a not therapist. hearing her and no. what she was challenged by. It's
0: very dismissive, very dismissive yeah. of her experience. So do you have stats on minorities as Raiders? Because I would imagine that this trope just gets done over and over again because of there no. being so other characters, so little other types of characters that are written.
1: Well, um, I think, I I think it's actually too soon to get all the stats, but you you can, we can definitely tell that in the last year, there's, there is a shift. And I would think also the person who gets the credit for this, at least starting this is Shonda Rhimes and Tyler Perry, but I like what he's doing and I like that he's a powerhouse and he certainly is creative. Okay. At
0: the the bottom of your article, 14% of show
1: writers are people of color. Oh, this one. I didn't even see that one what late? Wait, wait, check the date on this. Well, this is 2019. So that's recent. Okay. That's good. Yeah, it needs to be higher. It yeah, needs it to be. It needs to absolutely be representative of what the, the population stats are. And by the way, mm-hmm. let me just say that that's what our elected officials should be as well. Our elected officials should be representing yeah, the no gender kidding. and the racial makeup of the United States. But I digress. Yes. Um, there's the sexy corpse. I'm a dead woman. <laughs> I'm half naked. I'm hypersexualized. Just what every crime scene needs. That's really true because uh, that's not what it looks like. It is and our true you know, crime
0: community knows this one pretty well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Every TV show out there.
1: There's several of them. The bitchy boss, I'm a woman, I'm in charge. So of course that means I'm mean and nasty. You know, that's that's something that's completely out of balance because once again, we look at women as, you know, we, right. like if you're not fully recognizing them as autonomous human beings, then you want to put them into this little, uh, cabinet of a, of a boss that it's sort of the idea of, you know, if we were to take all those qualities and, and in a, and put it in a male character, then we would automatically be saying, oh, this is an assertive, authoritative boss who's running a tight ship. But if we do it to a woman, then we're, you know,
0: yes, I like, um, the fighting fuck toy so i'm a female fighter warrior action hero but i ultimately exist for the male gaze because i'm kicking butt in a bikini which of course like laura croft like all of that but i i think it's so funny because i think of jumanji the live action one that came out first and then you have a boy in this body of this like trope character that is kind of hilarious because like what do i do with all of this
1: <laughs> yeah i mean well, like i that's i mean i wish that had been a better movie but that is a yeah. really good example of of struggling with that trope one that particular i find interesting because i i don't i have a different take on this but on this list they talk about the slutty lgbtq character uh-huh. i sleep with everyone because my sexuality is the defining aspect of my identity and i agree like that's a trope that needs to end but i would also offer that if we are Living in a primarily puritanical society that looks at a very narrow view of what healthy sexuality is, right? Then it's very easy to judge what is just sure. being done openly. Sure. You know, so are you calling it slutty when somebody is just being? They have a more open and they're more comfortable with their sexuality than something that is more of right. a her- more of a heteronormative perspective. Totally. So. Yeah. I
0: mean, look at, I mean, that's how we labeled Samantha from sex in the city, right. As slutty, the slutty one, when it's like, she's incredibly responsible with her sexual behavior and, you know, from, from safety to, it just, it was.
1: To also being really, come on, really being upfront with her partners about what it's about. Completely. So if we very healthy, then that's another example of like, if, you know, Like we wouldn't, I mean, look at Barney on How I Met Your Mother. I mean, I love Neil Patrick Harris and I love that character, but I have problems with it now because he's so manipulative, Uh right? And they use it as a comedy thing. But then again, on what Samantha does is that she owns her sexuality and she's very open about it and very, you know, like, this is what we're doing and she's not taking advantage of anyone.
0: Right, right. Yeah, these are really, these are good ones. On yeah, this list. But it's
1: that was a great question too. Thank you for writing that question. I think that's just fascinating. It is. I we think
0: would... we received that question a long time ago, and I was like, we have to get around to this. But right. so, are, are we hypothesizing that it comes down to the writers and the lack of diversity, yeah. and just kind of it, a lot of stuff? I guess gets repeated that has success in entertainment that well, maybe I needs think, to die.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, there's also like looking at what sells. So mm-hmm. there's this sort of concrete view of well this is what sells. And then you have to push back against that and go well no because no I don't care how many marketing research people you have is like if you're not opening up your market to bring in an additional audience right then how can that be an accurate stat well I remember on Will and Grace in and the, the first time around Karen made a really funny statement where she was flipping through the channels and she's like, Oh God, it's another comedy night. Fat guy, skinny wife, fat guy, skinny wife, fat guy, skinny wife, which is another, like, that's a a comedy trope. Totally. That doesn't really exist in the real world. I mean, the majority of people generally tend to not have that much disparity in their physical appearance. Yep. Um, I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. I thought
0: about that with the bumbling dad that was going to say that.
1: So the next one is, I'd also love to see how you both feel about social media and its effects on mental health.
0: And I then the question—the question after that was thoughts on social media and teens, which I think we can combine these two.
1: Yeah. So I'm really concerned about it. I teach uh, I teach law enforcement uh, about a three hour lecture every couple of weeks, and a big portion of this is the effect of social media on teens. I mean, mm-hmm. part of this talking about uh, children, and adolescents, and you know, I talk about, you know, I'm of the age when I grew up, if you were bullied, the bullying ended at 2.30 in the afternoon or 3 o'clock when school ended, and it doesn't now. It's and
0: relentless and all it's night.
1: relentless, and, and also not even just like the the experience of bullying, but the experience of comparing yourself with a false and unrealistic expectation of beauty or SES or right. lifestyle or career, it's just it's all it's all a fantasy, and I don't right. think kids are able to necessarily discern that as well as adults.
0: It's it's all a curated fantasy that we're getting all the time, yeah. over and over again. You know, as much as you you open up your phone, so it it is the the research is starting to show, particularly with the high rates of suicidal ideation with adolescent females. That it's looking more and, more and more like it's being attributed to social media use. Um, and you touched on the bullying. So one prong is is can be the bullying aspect, but the other prong can be the the depression that's we're seeing with those constant comparisons right. to this unachievable self-image or world or lifestyle, whatever you wanna.
1: I remember label there was, it, but
0: I Well there was a
1: report a few years ago about in the uh, Pacific Islanders and the Samoan community that they have now they're now seeing incidents of females with uh with eating disorders and that had never existed before they started getting exposed social to social media just unfathomable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um have you seen the social dilemma? I haven't seen it yet.
1: I haven't. I have a good friend who basically shut down all of her social media after watching it. Wow! Like she, have, had a, she had a yeah. very extreme reaction, and I thought, I well, for one thing, we are part of social media. We're mm-hmm. we're you know the yeah. we exist because of social media. So it's for not sure. like we can shut it all down. Um, but right. I do. Uh, have you watched it?
0: I haven't. I I told my husband that I want to watch it together. Um, he got rid of his instagram a few weeks ago and he's like my life is so much better (laughs) not that he was even on it that much because i mean you know him he's not that guy um but he's like god i would just sit here and like flip through while i was watching something on television and um i've heard a lot of people say i have to give my social media use some thought after watching it i had people at work cops at work go man i shared this with my whole family like it was really impactful, so I wish I had watched it before this question, but I wasn't able to fit it in with all of HBO Max.
1: I mean, I don't, <laughs> but I, I will say this: I don't, I don't need. I already knew that. Like, well, I know, of course, like, you know, you catch yourself. It's like I'm not really fully enjoying the show if I'm doom scrolling. And I mean, well, yeah. not even even when it's not during periods of doom. If I'm just getting a little serotonin or a dopamine bump right. every time somebody likes something that I posted, and right. um. So I, I need to look at that as well. I mean, I'm I'm going to see if I can do it without watching the social dilemma and then maybe watch And it later.
0: also looking at your phone while you're watching the social dilemma. <laughs>
1: exactly. No,
0: I mean it's it's we've talked about this before um I think you know this time period is really rough for people with social media with with COVID and then with the protests and the politicization of just how divided we are. I mean it can be very overwhelming, and you and I have advised folks that if they need to take a social media break or diet, that they really think about the impact that it's having on their mental health through this time. So I think that would be important to look yeah. at. But all right, so we're down to our last question, which is a really good one, and yeah. so crazy that I actually am, kind of starting to look into this research um, before this came in. So. This listener asks, why do cops talk like they're warriors going to war? It seems like a toxic and inaccurate view. Um, Thank you for this question. I just this last week have um, I'm working with uh, speaking of collaborations, working with a colleague from across the country. um, We're talking about what are we going to propose to a virtual conference that's happening next year. And we're gonna look at the us versus them mentality a little bit deeper um, in the future of policing. So I I just wanna address that that us versus them definition. And I go back to Kevin Gilmartin, who has done so much good work in looking at how police officers function from the physiological to the emotional to the perceptions. And he says that. Basically, the us versus them mentality, and the us is police officers, and the them is the bad guys. Um, And he says that the police end up dealing with three to 6% of the population on a daily basis. And that three to 6% are people who are out there committing crimes. So if you're rarely dealing with the 94 to 97% of the population who are doing good things and not bad things, think about how that is going to start to formulate how you see the world. And that over time, they see the people and the work, the world that in which they work as the real world, like they think this is, I'm seeing behind the curtain, I'm seeing all the bad stuff. And I think this is kind of linked to some of the research you and I want to do of those of us who consume true crime all the time. Do we start to think the world is this big, scary, awful place all the time? Because that's what we're consuming. It's kind of similar to, you know, what your mind is being fed. Um, So Kevin Gilmartin really says that that lends to this us versus them mentality, that there's the good guys and that there's the bad guys, which is a very... Black and white way of thinking, um, or all or nothing. I hate to say black and white. I, st- I try to stop using that because we equate that with police cars, and I'm like, this is right. not just <laughs> police thinking. Um, but we, you see it a lot in law enforcement because you're saturated with the bad stuff, um, and it, it impacts law enforcement in all sorts of ways. I mean, you could be a an FBI agent who works crimes against children. You don't have to be a cop patrolling the streets to have this sort of view. If you're just investigating sex crimes against children, your view is going to start to be skewed. So I think, you know, it's important to sort of start there and see, you know, talk about a little bit about how maybe it develops. But going back to his question about cops, you know, talking like they're warriors or that they're going to war, this is a big deal in the area of police reform for several years now in you know, the militization of weapons and type of equipment they carry to what is being trained, you know, how are they being trained? And is any of that sort of this warrior mentality when it shouldn't be us against them, it should be how can we help our communities and how can we be public servants? Um, However, which is good, I think we need to look at that. I think it's. I think it's more complicated than just a type of training or a type of weapon that they have. Uh, if we look at like the AR-15, right? That that was born out of the North Hollywood shootout and law enforcement officers realizing, hey, at certain times we might be outgunned by the bad guys, and then what happens is an hours long situation where the bad guys are now sending thousands of rounds out into the public. Um, and they had no way to combat that at the time. So that that was a big shift in equipment. But I think it's more about the individual mentality that somebody takes on. I don't think it's happening on a, a large basis where groups of officers are thinking of themselves as warriors. And, you know, I'm not quite sure where that's coming from. I think it can come from an, all sorts of experiences. Um,
1: well Look, I uh, this is totally anecdotal. But no, go for it. I, I have to say that I you know, you talked about sort of the militarization. I'm just going to say from a p- perspective of optics. So if you are dressing full armor like you're going into a battlefield and i'm not saying that i don't want my off our officers to be protected i absolutely do mm-hmm. but there is a level of anonymity that comes with all of that gear that come that i think contributes to a homogenization of thought that is not good for that small percentage of law enforcement personalities the very small percentage of the ones that will act in a way that is inappropriate and not adhering to the standards and the requirements of their job. I, so
0: you're talking about like helmets, helmets, um,
1: masks, like goggle, like, you know, all these, this protective gear, there's a way that it becomes where, you know, it helps to create something that's other than protecting. You know, it also goes to like sort of the funding that came down for police departments. So we've got like these little, almost rural police departments that have, have full on tanks. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you expect the people in your community to think when you have a tank?
0: Well, <laughs> I don't know what the the purpose of a tank would be for, and I don't know when that would actually roll out to anything. Right.
1: I mean, that's the
0: and, and I think, you know, when you're talking about, like, full-on gear, helmets, um, possibly masks, um, you know, more tactical type gear, those are reserved for very specific situations. Right. So, SWAT teams that are encountering armed, barricaded suspects, um, or where there's a lot of, you know, especially, you know, recently with riots and protests, if those are turning to where projectiles are being launched.
1: Right, right. Um,
0: if there is gas that's being used, you know, masks would be there for protection. Um, but your everyday patrol officer isn't I mean I I don't think I ever took my helmet out of my trunk that we had there I once once we had an active shooter a guy that was shooting his rifle from his apartment Jeez. um so I took that out of my car on one occasion but that that's not something that is done in an everyday patrol type scenario right um it it's totally reserved for when it's absolutely needed for the officer's protection because of the actions of of somebody else. Um, but yes, I, that perception, definitely the equipment, I get it. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking of the mentality of this person and the words that are coming out of their mouth. Right. Like, and that's why I said anecdotal.
1: Asking. I was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, but I think, you know, there's a couple of things we do have a lot of officers that are former veterans. <laughs> so, you know, that have seen, we've had a lot of wars and a lot of combat in the last several decades where veterans who are coming out and being hired as police officers do have combat experience. So they're, they're coming with that mentality. Um, I think that might be one contributor to it. I kind of reflected on this and I was like, wow, have I ever thought like that? And I didn't on a day-to-day basis. No. And, and the place that I worked was very community oriented. Our community Really, really um was proud of us and loved us. And I was very fortunate to work there. Um fairly low crime, you know, if we just kind of put it against the backdrop of all of Southern California. Um but after I was involved in my last shooting, my uh, my second of my two, I spur of the moment um was with a friend and we were in Baltimore for a conference. I was also in grad school at the time. And we went to a tattoo shop and she and I both spontaneously decided to get tattoos. And I got one that in another language says warrior. And that came specifically out of the scenario that I survived from my shooting where I felt it. I was a survivor of this scenario, but never had I had that mentality on like a day-to-day basis when I was going out into the field. So I do, I wonder if, and I haven't found research yet. Like I said, I'm just starting to like dive into this as of this week. Um, but I wonder if those who have been in post critical incidents have that, um, if that can contribute to that, but I know, you know, I know what this, this listener is talking about. I know that guy I've worked with that guy who has been like, all right, you know, it's time to get out there and go see what the world is bringing today. And yeah. <laughs> um, you know, can and, have very much that kind of verbiage. And he's he's saying that out loud, right? So other people are hearing it.
1: Yeah. I mean, but what's the individual I, I,
0: basis if they pick it up or not.
1: And I, you know, I haven't seen it to the to the extent you have. I've seen a couple of that. I have to say also that I'm so impressed by the detectives and officers that I do work with that and even some of them that are former military that are absolutely not that at all.
0: Right, right. You know, yeah. that
1: like it's, they are, you know, they are frustrated with the things that are sort of systemic that like keep repeating on this, you know, sort of uh, merry-go-round that they have to deal with. But, yeah. you know, the the level, especially of the detectives that I work with, are the, the level of critical thinking is really impressive. You know, yeah. that like, no, 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 I that's agree. not what's going on here. We got to take care of it, but we can't always be. You know, you can't always be on looking for the worst because then your your field of vision is narrowed. You, know, yeah. you have to look at the big picture, and I think that that's something that that the agency I work with does especially well.
0: Yeah, and I I think you know Kevin Martin makes a good point in his formulation of the us versus them, but the vast majority, especially if you look throughout the country, the vast majority of police work does not involve violence and is not violent, whether it's police officer perpetrated or community member perpetrated. And so, you know, I think I'm in between like wearing two hats here, but I think psychologically there's got to be some sort of cognitive distortion going on. If, you know, it's somebody that I work with taking on that like warrior mentality if we're working in a little city that doesn't see a lot of crime and not that the city that does see a lot of crime, not that they should be taking on that mentality either. Um, but it, it's a very interesting question. And I'm I'm so excited to sort of like dive into this a little bit more. But those are just sort of my theories about I, it's I, a starting I, point but we'll yeah
1: see. I I'm really glad you covered this because I think this is your your particular niche much more so than mine is and I, but I loved how you also kind of pointed out that this is a conversation that's going on right now and it's mm-hmm. also there is movement and it is going to happen it is inevitable that this is going to find a better way of the it job sure being is. done you know, and I, yeah. think every, I think everybody's up to it These uh, difficult times, but, you know, there's just such amazing potential on the horizon.
0: Absolutely. And, and Scott and I can tell you from, from being on the inside out, things are changing. Things are moving for the better. The work's being done. The research is being done. The um, conversations are happening between law enforcement and the people that they need to be had with you know, in the community. Um, and, and a lot of this was being done already, especially in bigger progressive in ours, departments. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, for 30 years, there's been a lot of movement and progression and departments realize they can always do better, even if they feel like they've been doing well all they this always time. Always do better, yeah. So um, there, there is a lot of really important stuff happening right now. And and I'm happy I get to be privy to a little bit of it. So yeah. Woo. So that's our listener question episode. Thank you guys. Lots of good stuff.
1: This has been great stuff. Keep it coming. It it may take us six months to get around to another two (laughs) listener question episodes. I know.
0: When was our last one? I have to look.
1: It was a long time, but this is a lot of fun. And uh, thank you for listening and uh, being part of the conversation. I'm sure what we'll do probably this will be, you know, by the time you're listening to this, you'll probably get that it's gonna be two episodes uh mm-hmm. week to week, back to back, that we don't usually do. And we'll um, do commensurate get vocals to do follow up discussions of it too. For please sure. please join us on get vocal wherever you are in the world. Estonia, I know you're out there. I keep seeing you on my chartable. We're really high in Estonia. Thank you.
0: I really want to visit Estonia. I by do the too. Way. I haven't that been looks I was amazing.
1: there 30 years ago. So we should go again.
0: Oh my goodness. They have the coolest technology. Do you know everything is on the cloud for them? Like literally everything, which is kind of scary. Like nobody. Yeah. You just give a number. You don't have like a bank banking account number or anything. You just have a number, which is a little scary, but also kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Enough with our black mirror talk, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right, guys. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Take care.
1: Bye folks. Stay safe. Be safe. Be well. Bye.